0: This podcast is brought to you by the New York Times Climate Tech Conference. The New York Times invites you and your fellow innovators, entrepreneurs, and decision makers to join them in San Francisco on November 29th and 30th for climate tech. This Times-hosted conference is dedicated to cutting-edge technological solutions to global warming, featuring panels and moderation by top Times journalists. Engage with influential leaders from key industries— and explore how innovation of all stripes can help solve one of the most pressing issues of our time. To apply and receive a 20% discount, visit NYTClimatetech.com and use the code GTM20. Again, for a 20% discount, go to NYTClimatetech.com and use the promo code GTM20. Hey, Stephen here. This week, we've got another edition of What It Takes, a live interview series on how top clean tech entrepreneurs built their companies, produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Green Tech Media. This week, a conversation with Andrew Birch, the co-founder and CEO of Sungevity. For those who've been following the wild ride in solar, or perhaps you've faced a bit of whiplash yourself, you're going to want to listen to this interview. Until recently, Sungevity was the third biggest residential solar installer in the U.S., until it went bankrupt at the beginning of the year. In this interview, Birch talks candidly about how Sungevity was started, what killed an acquisition deal to save the company, how market forces and the political landscape hurt the installer, and where he thinks global solar trends are headed. A big thanks to Powerhouse, the cleantech incubator and accelerator in San Francisco, for putting on this event and including GTM as a partner. We're going to first hear Shale Khan set up the interview, and then Powerhouse founder and CEO Emily Kirsch takes it away. Before we get started, don't forget to head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review. If you want to support the show, a five-star rating is the best way to help us find new listeners. Thanks for your support, and enjoy this interview with Sungevity's Andrew Birch.
1: So, residential solar is not new. Homeowners have been installing it in the U.S. for well over 30 years, and in fact, some of the original solar rooftops that were installed over 30 years ago are still operating just fine today. But residential solar was a niche market for most of its history. The upfront capital expense could run a homeowner $30,000 or more. The payback period could be 10, 15, even 20 years, and relatively few people would adopt as a result. That all began to change about a decade ago, along with two co-founders, Andrew Birch, who's sitting right behind me, founded Sungevity in 2007 to take on what had been basically a dormant residential solar sector. At that time, when Sungevity was founded, there were less than 50,000 homes in the U.S. that had solar on their roof. Fast forward to today. More than 1.5 million homes have solar on their roof today. We're installing more residential solar each quarter in the U.S. now than we had in the entire history prior to 2007. And Sungevity, along with its two probably largest competitors, Sunrun and SolarCity, was a big part of making that happen. Sungevity spent years in the top five of all residential solar companies in the U.S., And from my perspective as an outsider, let me offer you a few things that I think made Sungevity unique amongst its peers. First, Sungevity was a software innovator. Um, It was the first major solar company to do remote system design. So no longer did you need multiple truck rolls out to a customer's house in order to provide an accurate bid. That was an innovation that came largely from Sungevity. Second, Sungevity really knew customer acquisition. Its consumer branding, its marketing efforts, especially relative to its size, were unparalleled amongst its peers. Third, Sungevity went international, which very few others did, launching residential solar businesses in the Netherlands and in Australia. And finally, its employees really loved the company. I've known many people who worked at Sungevity, many people who worked at all major residential solar companies, and I've known no other company besides longevity, to produce such reverence amongst its team. So in one sense, uh, Andrew's story and the story of Sungevity is is a success story. But of course, that's not how it ends, because in March of this year, Sungevity filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy and hundreds of employees lost their jobs, um, some with relatively little notice. It was quite brutal for many of them. So what happened? I'm sure Andrew will offer all the details and obviously has far greater context than I do, but let me provide a little bit of market context around what happened to Sungevity. So after Sungevity's founding in 2007, it took a few years for residential solar to really take off in the US, but when it did, it really boomed fast. In 2012, which is what I would say is sort of the first year of this recent boom in residential solar, the market grew 62%. In 2013, it grew 61%. In 2014, it grew 59%. In 2015, it grew another 71%. But then the music slowed down and it kind of stopped. And growth in 2016 fell to 20% annually, which is still pretty respectable. But then this year, maybe the first down year for residential solar in recent history. Some companies have survived, and some business models have fared better than others have, but Sungevity was one among a group of the top-tier residential solar companies that went bankrupt, shut down, or have been sold for pieces over the past couple of years. This includes other names like Verengo Solar, One Roof Energy, Next Step Living, NRG Home Solar, even Solar City, the biggest residential solar company in the country, now subsumed within Tesla, is dramatically smaller than it was two years ago. To me, Sangevity's story offers a window into one of the biggest challenges in clean tech that is faced not just in residential solar but in the sector more broadly. Even with a growing market, which we still have in most of these areas, even with economics increasingly on your side, and with world-class technology. Profit is hard to find and harder to sustain. Clean tech companies eventually need to crack that code if they're truly going to disrupt electricity and sustain their growth. So I personally am really eager to hear Andrew's story and Sungevity's story, the good, the bad, the lessons we can all learn. And I also just want to say that I really a- applaud and appreciate Andrew's willingness to tell that story. Not everyone would and everyone should. So with that, I will hand the mic over to the eminently capable Emily Kirsch to interview Andrew Birch. Thank you.
2: All right. Um I'm Emily Kirsch, co-founder and CEO here at Powerhouse, and The stories of clean energy luminaries are rarely told, and that's why Powerhouse and GTM teamed up to bring you those stories in the form of this monthly event series here at Powerhouse, but also in the form of the podcast that we launched with GTM called What It Takes. And this month, we're featuring the co-founder and former CEO of Sangevity, Andrew Birch, also known as Birchie. So Birchie, thanks so much for being with us here tonight. Thank you. Why don't you start by telling us where did you grow up and what was it like where you grew up?
3: So this is probably the easiest question of the evening. (laughs) That's right. Um, So I was uh, born in Scotland, which I think, if it's not the least sunny country on planet Earth, it's certainly a candidate. Um, And I think since then I've been migrating to sunnier and sunnier claims as part of my clean energy, my personal clean energy strategy. Um, (laughs) And how was it growing up? It was cloudy. It was kind of a, you know, it's an interesting place. I was a bit of a physics geek, um... I find an old school manual from when I was, you know, seven. I think seven years old with a little my first sort of semblance of a drawing of a PV cell, the photoelectric effect, and so something stuck way back then. But
2: how old were you when you found that drawing?
3: There was like a seven. I had a little uh, kids' physics book um, that I used to scribble on. I, I again, I didn't have any friends um, when I was young. <laughs> um, yeah, I, used to, I was one of those kids who just stared up at the stars and th- thought a lot about what made the world work, and and that seemed to be me for the next kind of ten years until I, uh, until I left left home.
2: I also heard your maybe not so friends called you Captain Planet. Is that right?
3: <laughs> yeah. So there was a at school. Yeah, I sort of had a few various uh, nicknames. Some of them uh, probably not uh, appropriate for. For an event such as You can as this. say whatever you want on No, this podcast. let's 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 not. Let's not. <laughs> okay. um, uh, but yeah, Captain Planet was the more sort of relevant of the nicknames that I had uh, way back then.
2: Gotcha. And tell us about the years leading up to longevity
3: yes yeah, so i uh, 'll try and keep it relevant, it, but um, there was a lot i 'm sure all of the entrepreneurs in the room and everyone in, in clean tech we all have our you know journey that brings us to these these points and so for me, it was I was kind of Captain planet into physics, I decided to do investment banking but with an environmental sort of bent um, and socially responsible investment as it was called back then in the early '90s. Um, I met some of the early clean tech companies, Astro Power, based out of Delaware. Um, I remember the sort of epiphany of seeing their presentation of the falling cost of solar, which, you know, panels back then were, you know, $13, $14 a watt. Um, and, you know, when we started Sungevity, panels were $4 a watt. And here we know, we are now in the, you know, $0.30, $0.40 cents a watt kind of zone. So, you know, it was, I felt kind of privileged to be exposed to some of those numbers, you know, in the late 90s. And as a sort of physicist and banker, um, uh, if you excuse me, you know, if we can forgive people for being bankers for for a moment, um, it was sort of that combination that got me excited, the math and the environmental side. This is something I wanted to do with my life. So I quit banking. I had my first um, of many midlife crises um, age, I think, 25 and um left, you know, I had the, the sort of you know epiphany moment, it upset my parents and saying I'm gonna give up this well paid, secure job, packed everything in a bag, went to Australia, and um uh did a postgraduate degree in photovoltaics at the University of New South Wales, which sort of taught me the science of and physics of solar. I did a thesis in the economics of solar and then wanted to start a company and sort of try and be dangerous and useful and have an impact and hopefully positive impact in the world using what I'd learned to, to apply to the solar industry. And at the time, the university textbooks, to the point um, GTM uh, made earlier, that you know this industry was so small for so long, my UNSW uh, textbook had the, the insane rapid growth of the industry from 15 megawatts to 75 megawatts of global annual production production. Uh, <laughs> Through, you know, through, I think it was 1999 or something. And so I was one of the early folk in, in UNSW doing that that research and on the economic side and ended up doing, a, a not going into startup, did a, a spell at BP Solar as business development manager. And then to finally get to Sungevity, I was in the office one afternoon when Google Earth switched on. And I mean, maybe it's the same for everyone or not, but that moment when you're in the office and everyone stops working, kind of screaming at each other going, oh my God, I can see my mom's house. (laughs) So I just happened to be reading a book, How Dell Does It by Michael Dell, when we discovered Google Earth and Google Earth kind of became a reality and realized that actually some of the problems I was trying to solve for BP and residential solar could be solved by the combination of standardized, simple, consumer-facing design like Dell did PCs to to make that industry thrive um, with the technology and software that just became available with satellite imagery. So we had this this breakthrough idea, exciting idea of selling solar online and designing systems using satellite and aerial imagery to make it easy for customers to understand how much they could save with solar. That's kind of the genesis.
2: And did you try to push that idea at BP, where was BP at that point in the solar space, and were they encouraging of the kind of work you were doing?
3: They were encouraging, but just uh, culturally and structurally, they weren't able to execute a plan. They, they had been for 30 years, either one or two in solar. BP Solar was like a longtime manufacturer. They had, at the time, what was one of the biggest manufacturing bases, you know, 35 megawatts, not a lot today. Um, but they were one of the leaders for many years. But they, um, the strategy changed at the top. You know, Lord Bryan was kicked out, and the $15 billion budget we had to play with in renewable energy vanished. And uh, that was the end of that. So it was kind of timely that we had an idea and no budget for me to go elsewhere and start a company.
2: So tell us about that. You, you left BP. You had this idea. Who did you go to? How did you actually start Sungevity?
3: So I we had to, so the initial idea was formed, and I was going to start a company and come to America to raise the capital because this is where the software is and the the infrastructure and the community is to start to start software driven businesses. Um, and I was just telling Danny uh, Kennedy, my you know, very good friend and co-founder, um, about the concept and I was going to move and I was actually getting married that year as well just to make life really easy. <laughs> um, and he said, no way, I'm going to America as well. He was running Greenpeace in, uh, in the Asia-Pacific region and said, I'm heading there too. I was like, all right, what's your business model? And he's like, well, okay, what's your business model? And my in-laws were in town in Australia, so that was another good reason to leave the country. And um, I'm hoping they're not going to listen to this podcast. Um, So I jumped on a plane to meet Alec, who Danny was starting a company with. And Danny and Alec had met as activists. I think Danny was it was Alec that was wearing the penguin suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside the United Nations, United Nations building, when Danny and Alec met, uh, so we had this sort of weird combination of a Scottish banker, an Australian entrepreneur, and an American uh, American uh, sorry, an Australian activist and an American entrepreneur who started Longevity. Yacht.
2: How did you know Danny?
3: Um, so it's kind of a funny story. He uh, plagiarized um, some of my work, <laughs> uh, I, no- knowingly. Uh, so I'd written uh I'd done an analysis uh, of subsidies that were being subverted from the Australian taxpayers' pocket into these private energy companies, coal companies, they basically accelerated the depreciation of the assets when they privatized them. Boring stuff that banker geeks like me get excited about, um, wrote it up to show how many hundreds of millions of dollars had been transferred from the public purse to these companies and that, artificially lowered the cost of electricity in Australia, which made it hard for solar to compete. Um, BP weren't very keen on me publishing that at the time. Shocking. um, For various reasons. And so uh, somehow I think I must have left a piece of paper on a desk or something, and Danny found it, and he published it.
2: You left it, quote-unquote, accidentally?
3: Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs)
2: Got it. Yeah. Got it. Okay, so you team up. You... Start longevity. Where where was this idea actually crystallized? Uh, were you paying yourselves when you first got started?
3: Uh, no. So we so we, Danny and I met in Australia, but the idea was to come here and start it. So we, we I came over for the weekend, met Alec, great guy. The three of us just got on so well. House on fire. All had the same vision for where the industry needed to go and the importance of creating customer facing solutions. So. You know, there's a lot of people I think in this room who've focused on that today, which is exactly right in my mind. Back in the day, it was all about how do we make the, you know, the wafers 15% more efficient. There was nothing downstream. There was no, no innovation about how to take what was ultimately always going to be a commoditized upstream and take it downstream in a way that made it easy for customers to access solar. So we all had that vision, uh, and so we decided to start the company up together and. So I got married, my wife and I came here, We, Danny and his wife and two kids had just moved here and we started the company up and we had, uh, you know, a couple of people start straight away, two or three folk who were really, I'd say, as much co-founders as the rest of us and a few of them are in the room, actually, I can see. Um, and that was it. And from there, we started this 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 great, you know, great culture and great, great company.
2: Where did the money come from?
3: Uh, so we had seed capital from friends and family, so we were pretty lucky um, to be able to seed it um, fairly quickly through some friends, and funnily enough, my, my first day on the job in the States was actually a meeting with a, a, a seed investor who was quite famous, and I just didn't happen to recognize her. Um, she was an actress. Are you able to say who? C. Blanchette. Australian, American, Australian actress. It. She's been in a lot of movies. Nice. <laughs> we're we're very close. Um, but yeah, it was it, we had some uh, you know really keen mission driven early seed investors that made it possible, which was great.
2: And what did that seed capital allow you to do?
3: So the first thing was to it was really a software ideas. As, as as per the introduction, we we had an idea to design systems without going to the home. So if you think about the market at the time, and this is maybe relevant for some of the problems everyone's trying to solve in this room now in this marketplace, kind of similar. And it was very fragmented. The solutions were not customer friendly. You know, a a consumer would, if they had any semblance of interest in solar, ring up a local contractor who would drive to the home some number of weeks later climb up on the roof, measure it, generate a quote which had all sorts of technical jargon that didn't make any sense, like a Keiko this inverter and a, you know, a Ningbo XYZ panel and watts and kilowatt hours and like, zzz, poof, you know, head, head just blows up. So our idea was to build software, you simply put your address into the website and we design a system and it's system A, B, C, D and they cost this much and they'll save you this much money and this much carbon and you can click here and go solar. So that the money basically led us to build the software to do that for the first time.
2: And what led you to believe that people would make these massive purchases online when no one had done that before?
3: Yeah, that that was one of the the leaps of faith. Um, there were a few things that we had to believe we could achieve that hadn't been done before, and that was really where the highest risk early, you know, capital and support really made you know what it. In, in, enabled and it was it was buying online which had never been done before big transaction before financing came in thirty forty thousand dollar ticket um, then there was the accuracy of designing a system could you actually design a system without going on on the roof and it turns out it's actually probably more accurate now with technology than it is to to make mistakes yourself physically there um, and then the last thing was subcontract we had a, a sort of an almost uber-like view which is well before we, we still used to ride in taxis Um, that if you want to build a network of infrastructure to fulfill a hard asset business, it's easier and better and faster and ultimately better for the customer to have a network of installers who could install on the ground to do the last mile. And then, and actually still today, the majority of businesses are vertically integrated and they do that in-house, which is a very capital-intensive way to grow a business. And being one of the many, one of the key challenges to profitability in residential solar is how do you fund that kind of thing when you're growing very fast. So our approach was to do that uh, with subcontractors and a network of great installers. So we had to prove three things, um, which was really the point of the seed capital in the first, I'd say, you know, two to three years of the business.
2: And people were betting on you because you were a software company, and you mentioned the founders, yourself as a banker, Danny, activist, Alec, serial entrepreneur, but as a software company, where did the developer, the engineer talent come in to build the product?
3: So it was actually one of those fortune, you know, you get luck both ways in business and life, and we just got very lucky. We bumped into a guy who actually was based in Sydney still, um, who, when we put it out to tender, like, this is what we want to do. We've called it the I quote, we want to build this thing and not only did this individual say, yeah, I can do that, but he figured out the math of looking at multiple images of the same roof and figuring out the relative position of points of the roof, which gave you pitch, azimuth, all the software, CAD software. Like Microsoft hadn't figured out how to do this. They had 300 people up in Washington, we find out later. It was a, he's just a really, really smart guy. <laughs> um, and he joined the team and he was on the team throughout the long, the 10-year you know, history at Sungevity. So he, he figured that out.
2: So he's building the product with you, and then you have the product. How are you getting your first customers?
3: So, um, yeah, so first customer, we did a hilarious thing. We, we designed 1,000 Homes. I think it was Albany. Um, and one weekend, we walked around Albany. California. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, just up the road, um, and handed out pictures of homes designed with solar. And we ran back to the office, and we sat there waiting for the phone just to ring off the hook and... <laughs> And it was kind of quiet. in fact, it was entirely silent for the first like week, and nothing happened, um, which is another lesson, like you know, be prepared for all that lovely enthusiasm to get sort of spat on and, and shaken up. And, um, so yeah, we, we didn't crack the nut day one, <laughs> but we eventually started getting some stories going, and the, the media picked up on this kind of cool online tool. Um, Danny and Alec did a heroic job. Uh, building up the PR side, and, and we got some great stories and that started to drive traffic and there was a funny moment one day we thought the CRM had broken um because it was unfortunately um, you know every now and then it did and uh the numbers of systems sold in our CRM just popped from zero to one without anyone speaking to a customer we're like ah oh, geez it broke again <laughs> And we looked and it was like, "There's a real customer in there." <laughs> and uh, to this day, I think I mean, I think it's the first system that was ever bought 100 percent online without human contact. And it was an octogenarian ex-Army pilot who just wanted to do the right thing, and he bought a system A for you know, 14999, and he was really happy. And so it was kind of a cool, cool way to kick off.: That's
0: awesome. This show is brought to you by the New York Times Climate Tech Conference. The New York Times invites you, your fellow innovators, entrepreneurs, and decision makers to join them in San Francisco, California on November 29th and 30th. The Times-hosted Climate Tech Conference is dedicated to cutting-edge technological solutions to global warming, featuring panels and moderation by top Times journalists, including Thomas Friedman. Climate Tech is your opportunity to engage with influential leaders from key industries such as Governor Jerry Brown, Geisha Williams, and Tom Steyer. You'll also enjoy a showcase of early-stage technology and explore how innovation of all stripes can help solve one of the most pressing issues of our time. To apply and receive a 20% discount, visit NYTClimatetech.com and use the code GTM20. Again, that's NYTClimatetech.com and the code gtm twenty. For a twenty percent discount. Uh,
2: as you're building this company, this you're a first-time entrepreneur. How did you know how to do all of this?
3: Yes, I had no idea uh, at all. Um, the yeah, we were very lucky. We had the team right at the beginning. We had great, great people who kind of had the the lucky combination and obviously we tried to find great talent so it wasn't entirely luck but we just we we had the right people in our ecosystem and they were able to join our team at the right time so we ended up with really really smart people who could do the pieces of the jigsaw that need to be built and then also we were sort of blessed by the mission orientation at the early stage. The I'd say over half of the first 10 people we had in Sungevity had activist backgrounds, and you know most of them in that initial kernel of the team that we built. And I think what that became was uh, a culture of people that not only believed in the technology and the customer service, but were passionately motivated to, to make the company a success and to make solar a success, to get clean energy out there. So it was really from the beginning a, a huge team Team effort
2: was part of that team did you have a board that was helpful or mentors or other founders that you could talk to about challenges that you were facing
3: yeah so we were chatting to some of the entrepreneurs just uh, in Powerhouse earlier and I mentioned that um, it really evolves so early on you know the board you know board meetings I, I think we probably had them um, they probably involved you know a meeting in the local uh, hostelry under the office Uh, very informal the the priorities change You start off with deep deep focus on proving out your business theory your product your will customers pay how much will they pay can this work this strategy this idea we've had Um, and then it evolves to um, to talent and building a team of people who can execute a growth strategy and and then you start getting into these completely new challenges so I never managed it team. Uh, I would imagine people would, I mean, I actually don't have to imagine, I recall people describing my management style as horrific. You know, you have to learn it. And I think one of the key lessons I took is because it evolves, if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur through many stages of a business, you you have to evolve yourself. You have to actively decide that you're going to try and change because, uh, you know, an ex-banker, analyst, BD, Guy from BP and some old US and British investment banks has absolutely no absolutely no experience in building teams, leading people, creating culture, creating systems, operating a business. So you have to learn really quick. Um, I definitely recommend to to the entrepreneurs here that you know get a mentor. Uh, again, we talked about this earlier with some of your team, but. Learn from people who have done it before. It's the fastest way to develop those skills um, and avoid many of the mistakes that you're undoubtedly going to be exposed to.
2: What was it like as you started to scale the business? Um, you went from a handful of employees to at one point, what was the the highest headcount of longevity? There are, uh, just over a thousand. So, employees. what was it like as you're as you're starting to scale? what was that like
3: yes again evolution you know when you're in a room we were up just a, you know a few miles from here in an office with 25 30 people you know them all by name you know kind of what they're good at and what they need help with to build a team around the functions that need to be done as soon as you get above that kind of size it's about you know putting teams and communication and infrastructure in place and and that was really the challenge through that whole growth period and you know you well, as soon as you get above direct ownership and responsibility of doing a task yourself like that's the transition and from there on in it's about talent you know almost everything in business is about the people you're, you're working with and trying to achieve that goal you've set out for the team
2: and what was as you're building the talent what was in scaling what was the peak of sungevity's success and what was it like being at that peak
3: yeah so we kind of we felt that the peak was ahead of us always there was never a moment when we said we just, you know, we just climaxed. Um, We are, you know, we had moments where we were sort of swayed by market share data and we sort of, you know, would, would celebrate, you know, being number two and a half point four in the U.S. market. Um, And that, you know, with hindsight, I think, and maybe this is a, uh, there's a lesson in here that, you know, make sure you're celebrating the right things as a team. You know, with hindsight, I think, Celebrating those months where we broke even, albeit very briefly um, and celebrating the team's achievements more would have been smarter, but I think at the time we were very the industry has been, and we were very focused on growth, so those were some of the more important those so celebrations and they felt like the wins at the time
2: and at one point speaking of wins, you had an
3: acquisition offer that was. You tell me if it was a good one, but it
2: seemed like a good one, and you passed. Tell us about that. Yes, yeah,
3: so we were talking about that, and I I, I I suppose I can say a little bit about it. We, um, yeah, so we were three years in, and we had this great technology. We'd proven out those three things. We were approached um, by a large Asian uh, conglomerate, and we said, no interest whatsoever. We're going to 10x next year because we were just launching the solar lease, so the combination of not only getting easy access to the information all online, but now monthly pay. So that $40,000, $30,000 upfront cost goes away, um, which is also one of the great innovations that came out of Sunrun and and SolarCity and and others. And that, when plugged into our online tool, was really powerful. So we were really excited about that. We said, no, we're not selling. We're going to 10x next year. Um, And they kept on just throwing stupid numbers at us. And so another lesson. Stupid, stupid meaning good numbers. Yeah, stupidly yeah. good. I think that might be a Scottish thing. Um,
2: it's not. I just want to make okay, sure yeah, everyone. Just in case there was it. anyone who was
3: wondering, <laughs> um, it, was, uh, it was it was crazy. And and another lesson that I took from that is even if you don't want to sell, tell them you ain't selling. So whatever those ideas you've got, and if you're a buyer in the room, I apologize for making your life harder, but for all the entrepreneurs in the room, tell them you don't want to sell. Um, because if they want you, they will come back again and again and again, and it will get better and better. At least that was our experience. So we um, had a great, uh, we had a hilarious moment uh, with this company where we would finally negotiated everything. It was done. We were out celebrating with them, you know, practicing our language in this Asian language, which if I tell you would make it obvious who they were. And we thought the deal was done, and it turned out that the because it was over a hundred million dollars. Three years in, we had two point eight million dollars of trailing twelve month revenue. It was sort of a big uh, number. We were over a hundred, which pushed it up to the family who owned the company, and the family were just about to fire the CEO, and the deal didn't happen. So, like the vagaries of life are kind of crazy, um, and I think there's lessons in there about for entrepreneurs about what it means to. Be in business, stay in business, make sure you have opportunities, uh, recognize that things are gonna be out of your control and are gonna change things even when you expect them to play out like they should. Um, There's a lot of lessons in that, which we can cover at some point.
2: Well, tell us, throughout that time, you were also raising capital from VCs, from strategics. Tell us about that process and especially lessons learned for entrepreneurs that are starting to engage with the venture community. Please note, I see some VCs in the room that I
3: recognize,
2: so choose your words wisely. <laughs> <laughs>
3: no, I got a lot of respect for all the, the venture capital community and our investors, and what they achieved—not just for longevity, but what the funding of the community has done for all of these ideas that ultimately need to get to market. So we we were um, we had some great investors. Our specific case was um, we were funded by initially by friends and family, but then by quite small mission-oriented venture capital. And I think that was very constructive. It was very in keeping with the culture of the business. We had a great board, um, a very supportive set of investors. I think two of the challenges we had, I'd think i say two of the mistakes that we made were that we did not Ultimately get one big anchor tenant large check written to properly capitalize the business. I spent, you know 90% of my time raising capital in the the last few years of longevity, which is kind of alarming Probably for many of you to hear but that was the reality of how capital intensive this business was Um, so I think there was a breakaway, we've always felt like there was a breakaway velocity that having a big balance sheet gets you better working capital terms, gets you better cost of capital project finance, gives you more confidence from your vendors and your customers, gets you better talent in that scale of the business. There was a bunch of positives that would have come from that that we never really achieved. Um, And the second sort of, I'd say, mistake is that on the board, and I'd encourage folk to at least think about this, is... Uh, for entrepreneurs, I think it's important to have diversity of operational history and experience, um, so that you get your best chance possible to get exposure to people who've made mistakes before you make them. So similar to the mentor coach thing, uh, you know, having people who've built companies at that, that phase of growth you're going into, I think is incredibly valuable to have on the board as well. Um, we we never really did that. Um, and then just lastly, I'd say, you know, on the capital raising side, we, uh, we raised a lot of money over 10 years. We never had that big, anchor, you know, the big balance sheet that we needed. We, uh, when we started the company, we did very specific, I, as the banker in the room, did a very, very specific analysis on the working capital in residential solar. We specifically went through every line item of the unit economics and resi and said, Let's push the payment of those to the right-hand side of when we collect the cash. So we get paid by a customer at install. Let's take the marketing spend, which is massive, and pay it on a success basis to customers who refer and partners who give us leads. So we pay after we've been paid by the customer. We took the hardware and copied the Dell playbook and paid for the hardware after we'd received it on payment terms. And we had a network of installers who we paid post-install. So we'd taken all the working capital requirements out of the business in the longevity business model, and that was what the Asset Light, Dell business enabled. It should have enabled massive growth. So great, we did that. That was smart. What we didn't do was, re- was keep analyzing the working capital in business as we grew. We're growing so fast, just managing growth was enormously challenging. And we didn't realize it when we switched on l- lease... Did 10x the business? We did actually 10x the number of sales we made that year, uh, which we promised this acquirer. Um, but we didn't realize that the business became a bank. We became this capital raising machine as a technology customer facing company at its heart and culture. We suddenly had this, you know, this working capital cash requirement, um, and that really became longevity for that next five years. And to sort of wind it forward to. The last twelve months of longevity, we we had uh, we met a partner um, which was a, a financial entity that had raised two hundred million dollars in public capital money, and we were going to reverse into that in a reverse IPO. So that would mean two hundred million dollars of fresh cash into the business, and longevity would go public. So very similar to to an IPO structure, but reversing into the money all, that was already raised. And our big bet was that we were going to, you know, that was the capital that would ultimately get us that balance sheet. We had a set of investors that had agreed a valuation, which was a very good valuation. And it was based on the business model and the ability to take that technology and roll it out across multiple countries. So we had a, you know, a vision, a plan to take all the 10 years of lessons here in the U.S., Australia, Netherlands, and Belgium, which we covered from our European business, which was about 30% of our sales uh, in the last year, and roll it out across multiple countries. So it was very exciting, and it was nearly a reality. Um, And obviously, we were out on our roadshow when Trump got elected. Surprise to the market. Any surprise is terrible for a deal, as I'm sure Wilson Cicini will will share. Um, When it was specifically created sector-specific risk risk in extremis, um, that became a deal breaker for for the company. And we were set up for that transaction. We were, you know, we were, you know, really planning on that growth plan and, and, and changing course from that was not a mathematical reality. Did you know when Trump
2: was elected and it was announced, did you know in that moment that the deal wouldn't go through?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I spent the whole night trying to figure out how to persuade a market that this would be good for solar and <laughs> joking apart, it's actually incredibly like if you, if you look at the Republican mandate on energy and energy independence and all the things that matter to uh, the Republican party, even go to some of the extreme elements of the Republican party. Solar is like the playbook, local jobs, get rid of the subsidies, get rid of the, the mindless bureaucracy, free up blue-collar jobs, um, energy independence, like I'm reading from the solar playbook here, and we as an industry created, as I'm sure all of you know, you know, 3x more jobs than the coal industry. The coal industry was in decline. Mathematically, the number of jobs that were available to be grown out there in the U.S. community was solar, so it kind of made a lot of sense but when you wake up in the morning and you're standing in front of an institution who thought they were signing up to a deal a few weeks ago and their portfolio their screen has got you know sun run down 14 percent or 15 whatever it was and the solar you know the entire publicly traded solar sector already just in dire straits as reaction you know that was that was too much for the deal
2: what happened after the deal didn't go through?
3: So we tried to get capital into the business. Um, Private investors similarly saw the risk as too high. And, um, you know, we we basically didn't have time to change the entire strategy of the company and capital investments we committed to in the company. We just, we didn't have the time. Um, So we we switched pretty quickly into the mode of how do we do absolutely the best thing for our stakeholders? as an aside, it was obviously an incredibly challenging time personally and for the, the management, for the team who were in it with us, for everyone who was working on it, all the stakeholder group, the investors, everyone, um, suppliers, partners, You know, everyone was going to be affected. So we tried our absolute best night and day to do the best by those stakeholders and get the best outcome with what we had, which was a very tough, uh, you know, tough position. So we, um, we did have a, an investor who was keen to own the assets of the company and in order to maximize the number of jobs that could be uh, maintained in the business and to ensure the most number of customers were looked after so that the solar industry didn't have a negative story that would hurt it um, to as best a degree possible we found a home for it that was not a good outcome for a lot of the stakeholders, but looked after the most that we could. And you know, the the good news here is that longevity continues to operate. You know, I think we've seen many stories about longevity ended. Songevity was in bankruptcy and a story. No, not the case. So, longevity in Europe is selling as many systems in Europe as we were last year. know, it was 30% of the business. It's now as big as Sungevity USA was. It's it's doing incredibly well. It's owned by Engie, one of the largest utilities in uh, in the world and in Europe and is thriving. Um, And Sungevity is now in the US still, you know, uh, in existence and um, we hope doing very well. So, you know, it's a restructuring. It's really, really hard on all the stakeholders, but Ultimately, the broader trends that are driving solar, I think, will be what we think about five, ten years from now.
2: Yeah. How was it when you got this deal negotiated? It sounds like you didn't have a ton of control over the company and the decisions at that point. Is that... True?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's not a lot. You can talk about the specifics because it's such the nature of transaction has a lot of confidentiality, but yeah, the, you lose control well before it happens because you're effectively transferring the assets and the running of the company. So a lot of the stuff that happened, the management team, myself, the old stakeholders just didn't control It was out of our hands. So yeah, there's not a lot you can do about that.
2: How was it not having control of the company at that point, having built it for the past 10 years? Tough. If you could call your younger self, what advice would you give yourself?
3: Um, so we talked to, uh, I think I've talked we've talked you've been listening. Unfortunately, you'll get a chance to speak soon. Um, I hope uh, I've talked about, about a lot of it. I think um, it's just a general lesson of learning. Like there's, it's not one thing. It's about um, recognizing your own weaknesses uh, it 's about recognizing the importance of as quickly as possible getting the best talent around you to execute whatever it is you 're trying to do um, again it it just comes down to people and um, and I think t- combining that with your instincts, like trusting your instincts, I think uh, you know a lot of entrepreneurs are going to get a lot of advice from thousands of different places, like pick your mentors and pick them well. And trust your instinct. Like people are going to tell you, really smart people are going to tell you, they're going to give you the wrong advice. And, you know, I, I actually look back at some of my most, I think some of the smartest people I've ever met who when I decided to start this, you know, online solar company said, you're crazy. No one is going to buy solar online. We saw 25,000 customers, you know, twenty. $1000 systems and they had a net promoter score that was as high as Apple and Amazon because we were militantly focused on customer experience like we 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 showed that it could be done and so yeah when you have an idea i think one of the biggest lessons that i tell my early self is you know believe it run with it get smart people around you but ultimately you know go with your gut
2: what was the hardest lesson to learn
3: uh, the I mean, it was just that the hardest was the, the you know, the, the end of the longevity in that shape and form. Uh, so, you know, the lesson of try and balance risk taking and growth with conservatism. I think that as human beings, and certainly myself, but I think this is a trait of most humans. We underestimate the extent of risk that exists in the universe. So. You know, the risk that I hear from so many entrepreneurs, as you've introduced me to some, and I've, just been, I've done a, a five month world tour of solar around the world and meeting people, and it, people are always concerned that their business is going to be overtaken by the other ideas around the room. When 80, 90% of businesses don't make it, the bigger concern is really making sure your business does. Uh, and I think people underestimate the relative balance of risk there. And just the uncertainty, you know, had we gone public you know, a week earlier, had the, the family of a large conglomerate not been firing the CEO, these would have been massively different outcomes for our shareholders and our partners. And really, you just got to be in it, fighting the fight, and making sure those opportunities, when they come, you, you really, you know, you try and get them done. But recognize the risk is big out there is, is I think, a lesson.
2: We're going to move into our high-voltage round. You this have is not
3: the, yeah, this is the hard bit. This is the, the hard one.
2: bit. You haven't seen these questions. Question one, what is your spirit animal?
3: <laughs> that's a, can I say that's a ridiculous question? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to come up with something really cool, but I can't. Uh, I just love dolphins. Is that bad? They're <laughs> really pretty, and they're efficient in the water, which is really nice. And I love water. <laughs> But they go the way they go through the water. Great. <laughs> <laughs> what
2: have you found consistently most inspiring?
3: Uh, people, uh, talent, the and and the people I've worked with at the 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 root of the business, not the. You know, I think I've there's plenty of inspiring leaders, big tech geniuses, and all you know all in the world you can you can be inspired by, but ultimately. Mm-hmm. You look at what was achieved by a group of typically very young people doing things for the first time, working as a team, solving big problems, and the culture that was created around that and the successes they achieved was the most inspiring and powerful thing in the whole experience.
2: If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it
3: be? I'd be in residential solar. Uh, globally. I think if I was starting a career like tomorrow, I think the US, just to offer a little industry thought if I may, the, <clears throat> the, I've just been traveling for five, five months and it, residential solar is basically a dollar a watt everywhere in the world except here where it's $3.50, it's criminal. And it's all regulatory, policy-driven. The panels are the same. The cost of capital is pretty much the same. The cost of everything is pretty much the same. These are structural issues that the U.S. residential solar market has to overcome that makes it incredibly, just inherently hard for the Sungevities and Sunruns and Solar Cities and Vivint's and Ferengos and all these great companies with great people and cultures and ideas and parts of the solution. It just makes it so hard to thrive because we have to deal with permitting and tariffs and all the risk that that creates for capital and investment and time for customers to wait to get an asset which drives the acquisition cost higher because structurally you can't tell your friend and just make it happen like you do everywhere else in the world. So, you know, it's a dollar or what? Every, I mean, you know, maybe it's a dollar 30 in some countries, but we're talking about, you know, sub 10 cent per kilowatt hour residential solar pretty much the world over without subsidy for people who've been in solar for 25 years, like to have achieved that, to have a group of, you know, we're, not, we're talking thousands of people and not hundreds of thousands of people have delivered that. Like that is insane. And so the government, the regulation needs to get out of the way in this country and it will be the largest solar economy in the world probably. And so I'm convinced still that that'll happen, but it's gonna take policy change. Um, elsewhere in the world, with the overlay of battery cost reduction, which is now meaning solar plus storage is an economic proposition for literally billions of people in the world today without subsidy. And I was guilty, so I'll give an admission, Alec and I, and Alec, Danny and I are still, you know, we're, they're, my God, uh, kids, godparents, all that good stuff we're, we, we've been through the wars together and we, we love to have a good chat we had a moment five months ago where we were like just depressed about solar we were kind of like like you know is this just do we get it wrong and you've got to get out of the country I encourage you to either get on a plane anywhere else in the world or contact your overseas friends and ask them about the fundamental economics of solar if indeed they have those conversations because most people don't but um <laughs> Just just go and explore. The rest of the world, solar is going crazy, and it will go through the roof because the economics of battery now with the economics of solar in combination are the most powerful trend in the energy industry, which is the largest sector of the world economy. It is the most powerful thing to be a part of. And this, I think, and everything I've seen is the biggest innovation hub. Uh, so being a part of that at that ground level and solving the last remaining problems that have been given to us, Today, I think, is the most exciting place to be for a career for anyone at this time.
2: Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because...
3: They don't understand risk.
2: My biggest regret is...
3: I didn't go public a week earlier.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs>
3: you want to elaborate? Um, we, yeah, I mean, just, you know... There was uh, the chair of our board, Rob Davenport, who was a great coach and mentor to me over the last you know the last five years, I think, some summarized a great point for entrepreneurs, which is he's a you know an Oakland fella. He he's he said that if you like the, the purpose of businesses at this stage, because risk is so prevalent, is to stay alive long enough to just be there when those opportunities happen. So there's a is a skill, and I'm not even sure I'm answering the question here, but I'll just make a point that's hopefully useful to the entrepreneurs in the room, which is there is a skill and a talent to not stepping on the gas every second of the day on the growth side, to staying alive, proving the unit economics of your product or your service and the working capital of that at the right scale. And when the time comes, you're gonna place a bet and you're gonna hit the growth button. But you'll know how much money you need because you know your working capital. You'll know, how much, you'll know that it's profitable when you grow because you've done the detailed analysis of every line item of your variable costs and your revenue line. So just that inherent conservatism. As entrepreneurs, I think the, the most wonderful thing about the people in this room and the people in our community is you're basically saying and doing this, You know, I'm gonna go and do it anyway despite the risk profile. You can, you can all earn money much easier than being an entrepreneur in clean tech. You're actively saying, I'm going to do this anyway, even though I understand the risks. That means you've got drive, you're inspired, and you're going to inspire other people, and you're a great person in my book. The trick is maintaining that optimism and that drive with this balance of timing your run right. And that is something that you know, no single person, certainly not me, has the answer to. But I think spending time thinking about that for your business uh, would be something that increases massively your probability of success.
2: And finish these last two sentences for me. Success is?
3: Having a positive impact on the world.
2: I'm most proud of?
3: The team we built.
2: Great. Please join me in giving a round of applause to Andrew Birch.